Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Rules, standards, ethics, there's no getting away from them, or is there? We'll take a look at what's going wrong, what the government can do to make it right, and who's in charge of the rules. Also, in a week when the news is running in overdrive, we'll turn to Northern Ireland to talk about the resignation of First Minister Arlene Foster and what it means for peace, power sharing and the future of the province. And then we will swing east across the Prime Minister's bridge not yet built to discuss the critical elections in Scotland next week. Can the SNP get a majority in the Scottish Parliament? And if so, what next for independence? We've got two new IFG papers out this week, which take a deep dive into the record of the devolved nations on health and education and explore whether they could pay for themselves if they were to break away from the UK. The report's authors are going to be with us later. But for now, we're kicking off the podcast with a pair of IFG veterans who between them have an encyclopedic knowledge of ministerial rules, civil service codes, lobbying regulations, you name it. IFG senior fellows Jill Rutter and Kath Haddon have taken a break from their residence on the airwaves to join us in the virtual studio. Hi, Jill and Kath. Hi. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to have you with us. And I'm delighted to be joined today as well by Stephen Daisley, columnist for the Scottish Daily Mail and The Spectator. Hi, Stephen. Good afternoon, Bronwyn. Does it feel like election season, even though we're not in a general election? It feels like a very flat election season, I have to say, in Scotland. Um, There isn't as much campaigning as usual. And most of the campaigning is just uh, the SNP saying, we want a referendum, and the Tories saying, no, you can't have one, over and over again. So it's not the most exciting election. Actually, that in itself is fascinating, so we'll, we'll dive right into that in a bit. Mm. Okay, but first, we are going to start with a question of standards and ethics. Only a few weeks ago, we were talking about a bad week for David Cameron, but that is a very long time ago in politics, and this has been a very bad week for Boris Johnson. We've heard of omni-shambles. This is beginning to look like an omni-scandal. Kath, kick it off for us. You've been much in demand this week explaining what's going on. How many fronts is the government fighting on? Well, it's not really the government that's fighting these. It's, it is, as you say, the prime minister primarily. I mean, basically what's happened in the last week is we've gone from a sort of almighty row played out in the papers between uh, the prime minister and his former advisor, Dominic Cummings, uh, with Dominic Cummings levelling a series of accusations against Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson in turn, well, before that, accusing Dominic Cummings of being the person leaking a lot of these scandalous stories. But what's really kind of taken off, especially in the last few days, has been all of the focus on particularly the prime minister's flat, the renovations that were done there and the money trail that went into that. And now we have three inquiries by three separate standards watchdogs uh, looking into exactly what happened. The Electoral Commission are looking into the financial loan that may have come from a Tory donor and why that hasn't been declared. Uh, the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner is going to be looking into why Boris Johnson hasn't declared anything about this. Uh, and meanwhile, the very recently appointed independent advisor on ministerial interests is going to be looking as to whether the ministerial code has been uh, breached on any of this. So uh, there are a lot of inquiries happening, but still no clarity from the government, nothing from Boris Johnson, just setting out what exactly was spent when. So, Jill, which bit matters most? Well, we have to see where any of these inquiries go and whether they do discover that whether this was just an oversight by the prime minister and something that people just go, well, that's okay. Uh, He needed a minute to sort his finances out. 
did this very quickly, bit of a slap on the wrist for not uh, not saying so straight away. But then we all forget about it or whether it looks much, uh, much dodgier, in which case this one could run and run. Of course, the other thing that Dominic Cummings did as well, and I think it's really interesting because I think this in some ways is sort of more substantive and a trailer for Dominic Cummings' appearance in Parliament next month are these briefings that the Prime Minister was very, very reluctant to contemplate a third lockdown and indeed referred to either letting the virus rip or letting bodies pile high. We don't yet know whether there are any tapes of that. What we do know is that some respected broadcasts have been prepared to say they think they have sufficient confirmation to run that as a big story, uh, as opposed to some sort of allegation from a very hacked-off ex-advisor. And I think in the long run, there's the sort of personal issues with Boris Johnson not being able to say no to his extravagant fiance and being sufficiently financially stretched that unlike Rishi Sunak, who gaily announced yesterday that he had just uh, just written a cheque for the renovations he did up front. Yeah, really, really helpful. The kind of the kind of favour you want from your chancellor. Exactly. Uh, it's like you feel that for the cost of a few Peloton bikes, you could have actually seen Boris Johnson write as well. But we know you shouldn't do that either, because that was what led to the downfall of Peter Mandelson the first time round. All right. But would you, would you say in all this um, that the Electoral Commission particularly presents a problem? I mean, it does have some teeth to it. The Electoral Commission, I think, is the one here which is the sort of, you know, most, uh, well, I think the Electoral Commission and the Parliamentary Standards Commission, because those are two that are sort of genuinely independent. The uh, Advisor on Standards, the Ministerial Advisor on Standards, can make recommendations to the Prime Minister, but uh, but both Kath and I have, I think, this week been pointing out that this is a pretty toothless post, and Christopher Geit uh, doesn't seem to have used the potential leverage he could have done Uh, before accepting this post, because they must have been getting pretty desperate to appoint somebody to demand much more independence. That's one reason why why people are looking a bit askance and saying that the minor improvements to that position, that he can confidentially raise issues with the prime minister, uh, isn't exactly a huge step forward in terms of transparency. So I think Mm. the Electoral Commission is a genuinely independent body, does have a bit of a sort of Damocles hanging over it that we know that the Conservatives have expressed reservations about the Electoral Commission in the past and, of course, uh, could easily bring forward legislation to get rid of it if they thought they could get that through Parliament. They'd probably assume that. The Parliamentary Standards Commissioner, harder to get rid of. But ultimately, those are just about sort of declaring. Boris Johnson's got a track record of not declaring his stuff in a timely way. So another slap writs for that. Uh, Stephen, um, I'd love your views on this. Can Johnson ride this one out? Well, you know, I, I am uh, of the view, perhaps unpopular view, I, I don't think this is cutting through yet. Um, I think if you look at the sort of most recent polling from, from BMG, it shows that the Prime Minister's his preferred PM rating over Keir Starmer is actually up five points. Um, but I do agree over with Over what period, um, though? Um, I think this uh, the uh, field work was done just before the disastrous PMQ's performance but it was done once earlier this week yeah yes it was done earlier this week some of it was in the public domain i do i do agree with jill i think that the um the electoral commission particularly also the parliamentary uh, standards commissioner that is um i think that's what matters most that's what people care about you know the line here 
it's not royal court or minor royal court uh, scuttlebutt. It's more, I think, for the people out there, it is is there any suggestion, and I'm, I'm not saying there is, but is there any suggestion that anything illegal has happened, anything that could you know, look um, improper has happened? Um, if I can put it this way, I think for, for the ordinary voter, it is, has the Prime Minister done anything that would put him on the wrong side of Ted Hastings and AC12? You know, and, and <laughs> got to get a line of duty reference in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, it's obligatory. I just, I just have to, um, um, especially because there's so many Scottish actors on it now. So I feel patriotic <laughs> duty. Um, and you know, I, I think that is that is. But seriously, that is what matters most to to um, to the punters out there. Um, I, I'm not sure this, the kind of the Dominic Cummings versus Boris stuff is cutting through. I think mm. people have factored in or. or at least a lot of Boris Johnson's voters have factored in that he is someone who has a, shall we say, a distant relationship with actuality. And so, you know, a, a lot of this is kind of baked in and, and that people uh, might overlook. I, However, I think if, you know, the Electoral Commission comes back with an adverse finding or the Parliamentary Standards Commission, that becomes uh, much more difficult, particularly if it, if it involves a referral to the real police. So, Kath, you were, um, we've mentioned Christopher Guy new character in all this. Can you explain him to us and whether you think he's going to make a difference? Yeah, well, I mean, the man himself is a former private secretary uh, to the Queen. So he's he's an establishment figure. You know, there's been a lot of people who've worked with him on the airwaves this week, sort of saying he's a stand-up guy. He'll, he'll you know, speak truth to power, all these kind of things that, that you need in a role like that. But he will still, for many, look, you know, and an establishment figure also can be looked upon very negatively. So the key thing we were looking for is, will there be any changes to the role? We've had an independent advisor on on uh, ministerial interest, i.e. on the ministerial code and, and whether it's been breached for, for many years since the 2000s. But what we were thinking might happen this time, because many people have been recommending it, was that this person would be able to initiate their own inquiries. Um, Previously, they've only been able to do so when asked by the Prime Minister. Instead, what what the Prime Minister has gone for is a sort of halfway house where he's still the person that can, you know, initiate an inquiry. Uh, into any of his ministers or into himself. But the independent advisor is able to recommend to the prime minister that he thinks an inquiry should happen. So um, the idea is that he then will be able to sort of push the prime minister into opening an inquiry if he thinks one must happen. So it really depends on his sort of force of character, which I think at the moment the IFG thinks is not good enough and that actually he should be able to initiate his own inquiries and then publish the findings and then the Prime Minister can decide what the sanctions should be. Jill, do you agree? And also, I'd be fascinated, you've been trying to explain the Prime Minister's girlfriend, Carrie, to the New York Times. What what, what do you think in all this is cutting through? I do agree with Kath. I think it's a real shame Christopher Guide has extra- accepted this job on these terms, actually, because I think the Prime Minister uh, and the Cabinet Secretary have been fairly desperate to unveil an independent advisor, and this was the opportunity to say that actually the sort of recommendations of the Committee on Standards in Public Life, chaired by Jonathan Evans, um, former head of the Secret Service, had made some recommendations for strengthening the position along the lines Kath has, uh, Kath has said. And I think there's a real opportunity to do that. And having found somebody who would accept the job on lesser terms, I think that pressure goes off. So I think that's a missed opportunity. I think a lot of the focus, it was quite interesting, the New York Times suddenly saying they decided that they ought to profile Carrie Simmons because she seemed like a big player. 
But it is quite interesting that with this prime minister, maybe more than any other prime minister that I can remember, we are all completely obsessed with who has his ear, whose faction has the upper hand in Downing Street in a way that uh, maybe we, t- we did talk a bit about Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill under Theresa May. We talked about Alistair Campbell under Tony Blair. We you know, talked about some of the Thatcher policy and things like that. But I think one of the problems here is this is partly because I think people see Boris Johnson as a bit of a sort of empty vessel and therefore attribute huge importance to who is talking to him, who is he listening to most, who has the final word, because that seems to be such a critical factor in what decisions he makes. So I think it's really important not to focus so much on this sort of soap opera of which advisor is in the ascendant when, things like that, and just focus on you know, why have we got someone as prime minister where we think the absolutely critical thing is whether the Cummings vote leave faction is in charge in Downing Street or whether the girlfriend faction with a bunch of former Gove advisors, Gove Maud advisors, Henry Newman, Simone Finn, some of these other characters have now moved into Downing Street following the vote leave exodus are in power. And really it's because we're effectively saying that we're not quite sure what the Prime Minister is all about and that he's largely determined by who he surrounds himself with. Well, uh, Stephen, do you agree with that? And do you think, I mean, there's an opportunity for Labour here? There is. uh, There's a lot of that I would agree with. I I think that the Prime Minister is still, you know, an unknown quantity, which is a very strange thing to say for someone who not only um, has been in Downing Street since 2019, but, you know, before then had a very high, you know, profile role in in public life, politics, media, etc., I, I would I would read the tea leaves the same way that yes I think the the kind of the the Gove and Henry Newman wing is is very much in the ascendancy now and perhaps now we are seeing or well, we have seen the clear out of the the vote leave um, people not not just Dominic Cummings but Oliver Lewis and people like that um, Henry Newman being someone who's close to Carrie Simmons yes they're they're they're, they're known to be to be very good friends and I, I think that you're you know. I think it's unarguable that we're now seeing the sort of revenge of the vote leave people. Um, again, I, I, I think that there's a, one, there's a problem in how much of it cuts through. And I know that's a, a kind of very tiresome thing to say because these things do matter and, and they shouldn't just matter and um, based on optics or public opinion. But at the same time, you know, I think it is important to, to make the case. Um, uh, that any kind of impropriety might have happened, you know, the public does have to be brought along with, on that, and I'm not sure that Labour is managing to do that yet. There is, however, ample opportunity um, for for Labour to do that, and you know, I, I think that if um, you know Keir Starmer, you know, it's sort of been forgiven that he's maybe not made as much of an impact so far because of the pandemic, and there's you know maybe more of a level of trust in government. Um, when you're you know, relying on government to give you a life-saving vaccine. Um, I think that the Labour Party in particular will be less forgiving if uh, Keir Starmer isn't able to land some blows on this. And I have to say, I actually see um, parallels, um, just listen to us talking about it just now, with the Salmond inquiry uh, in Scotland, where the opposition put a, a great deal of their efforts into into that inquiry. And in the end, the uh, the independent advisor um, although the, the, I have to say the, the, the independent advisor in the Scottish ministerial code uh, actually uh, functions roughly along the same lines as, as that which Boris Johnson has um, has applied. The Scottish government provides the remit, etc. But uh, similarly there, the, the opposition sort of 
built up what they saw as a scandal and, and in the end they weren't able to make it break through um, and I, I wonder if that's the same situation that Keir Starmer is going to find himself in and then after that I wonder you know how much longer the Labour Party is going to allow him to uh, to fail to cut through like this. So Kath can you wrap this up for us where is it going to go next? Well, I mean, these these inquiries that are going on, of them, probably the Ministerial Code will be the first to report. We know the Electoral Commission has been already looking into this for a while, but we also know they've got form taking several years to to study um, things. The main thing to say is that the declarations still haven't been made. From Boris Johnson's own point of view, he's supposed to make declarations of any kind of, you know, gift or donation or anything within 28 days. So they've got to put it out there pretty soon. So I think the first thing that will actually happen is probably we'll start to see what amounts changed hands when. Uh, the question is whether any of that looks, you know, so bad that that it leads to another round of stories. Other than that, I think Jill's right. The main thing is going to be on a different front, which is Dominic Cummings up before MPs uh, on, I think it's the 26th of May. Um, and then it will be a question of what more he reveals, either about any of these or about other issues from his time in government and whether that damages the prime minister further. Well, let's pivot at that point to Northern Ireland and to Arlene Foster. After five and a half years as First Minister of Northern Ireland, she announced her resignation as leader of the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, and as First Minister. She was a huge player in Northern Irish politics and in the UK's Brexit drama, but she's been forced out in a swirl of accusations about she, how she handled that Brexit drama and other questions. Her exit could mean that power sharing is in jeopardy, could split her own party, could, some are speculating, lead to a Sinn Féin First Minister soon, with implications for a border poll, as it's called, on the reunification of Ireland. So complicated, but potentially momentous. Jill, why has this happened? Uh, it seems to have happened for for two reasons. One of which is, uh, as you said, picking up blame for the protocol, but also because the Democratic Unionists seem to be uh, seeping support to uh, even harder line unionists. We always thought of the Democratic Unionists over here as the harder line unionists in comparison to, remember, the party, the Unionist Party that did sign the Good Friday Agreement, the Ulster Unionist Party, the party of David Trimble and people like that. There's a feeling, particularly over some of the sort of uh, you know social issues, that Arlene Foster is being too soft. Uh, I think there is also a bit of a feeling that she has uh, got a bit too close to Michelle O'Neill, the Deputy First Minister from Sinn Féin, uh, and that she's not taking a hard enough line. Remember some of those arguments about um, the police not uh, not pursuing Michelle O'Neill and other leading Sinn Féiners over their attendance last year at Bobby Story's funeral. So I think there's a sort of range of issues that people think she is not actually the right voice for the for the democratic unionists now, which means that it's very interesting because, and this is where I think the big risks for the protocol are, it seems... As this is the Northern uh, Ireland Protocol. Yeah, the governing Northern, Northern Ireland Protocol, the Brexit Protocol, which, of course, the Northern Ireland executive need to make work. The problem is that it may be that one of the Westminster MPs becomes party leader, but one of the emerging runners is the Northern Irish Agriculture Minister, who is called Edwin Poots, who is much more socially conservative than Arlene Foster, 
but also has been one of the uh, one of the sort of leading sort of if you like um, ministers really foot dragging over meeting some of the obligations these UK government obligations that have to be implemented by the executive on constructing border control posts and things like that you know actually making this protocol work and I think if he emerges as the first minister as the replacement there for Arlene Foster then uh, it may push power sharing over an edge it will make the implementation of the protocol already what I think we could describe as troubled much harder so I think this is really quite dangerous territory it's quite difficult over here to conceive that in many ways Arlene Foster is a relatively conciliatory figure, not perhaps how we quite see her after the experience of the DUP and its treatment of the May government, things like that, its constant refusal to back back Mrs May's withdrawal agreement. But it looks as though the DUP are tacking further towards that, uh, that more socially conservative, even more sceptical about the protocol position. Right. So, so Jill, I'd, I'd like to bring in Stephen at this, this point. It's fascinating what you describe, but which is potentially a split in the DUP, which has been, you know, a, a dominant force in Northern Ireland politics. But you've got, as you've described, hardline, hardliners perhaps tempted by the traditional unionist voice and its opposition to power sharing with Sinn Féin. And you've got perhaps moderates within the DUP saying um, we'll peel away to the non-sectarian alliance party. I mean, Stephen, what could happen? Could we end up because of that with um, with the Sinn Féin first minister fairly soon? Oh, I, I would agree with a lot of the analysis um, from from Jill there. I think that Edwin Putz does look most likely to replace um, Arlene Foster. He's not the only candidate, but you know he, he he ticks a lot of boxes for a lot of people in the DUP in a way that uh, um, you know again yes we probably don't think or people sort of in the the rest of the UK probably don't think of Arlene Foster as a, as a moderate and. I would, you know, I wouldn't like to use the word moderate to describe her, but actually in DUP terms, all relative. She was a conciliatory figure. I mean, Edwin puts, you know, I don't want to sort of speak too pejoratively. He is a young Earth creationist. You know, he doesn't believe in the theory of evolution. Now that is actually goes down well with a certain segment of fundamentalist voters within the DUP. That kind of thing, um, which might seem odd to us, but that kind of thing actually will will help him. Um, and if you look at the polling. In, in sort of recent months, and actually a lot of this does uh, tack back to the to the protocol, you know, the, the DUP got about 28% of the votes in the, the last um, Stormont election. And most recent polls has, have it down on 19%. On the other side, uh, TUV, the traditional uh, unionist voice uh, led by Jim Allister, got about 2.5% of the vote at the last Stormont election in 2017. It's now on 10% of the vote. And so I think the the, the nightmare scenario for the DUP and, and you know, the, the talk of, this is why I talk of a split, is maybe not as precipitous as it otherwise might be. You know, the, there's, a, there's a chance that the DUP not only loses um, voters to the right, um, sort of rhetorically speaking, um, to the more socially conservative party, I should say, in the case of TUV, but also among sort of more liberal uh, unionists um, that they could uh, drift to um, to Naomi Long's alliance. And, uh, you know, I think what we, you know, we should um, focus particularly on this, this move within the DUP to have a split leadership, you know, to have a separate 
overarching leader um, for Westminster uh, versus the, the First Minister at Stormont. You know, in a party that is um, sort of rife with factionalism just now, there is a, a very real threat that you end up with uh, a hardline leadership at Westminster that doesn't want to work with um, Sinn Féin or feels that it should be more distant from Sinn Féin um, versus a more moderate um, figure or or Edwin Poots, you know, who, who might try to sort of patch something together. You know, I, I don't think that it is out of the realm of possibility that, you know, we, we do, we are heading towards another breakdown in power shedding. I hope not, um, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Jill, I'm fascinated by one point you were raising about um, the, the, the prospect of Edwin Poots um, being leader. And it could put Westminster in a really difficult position, couldn't it? Because the executive, the Northern Ireland executive, is responsible for Im- implementing the protocol. But the UK carries the legal responsibility as the signatory to the international treaty. So what happens if you've got an executive that just refuses to play ball? Well, it'd be hugely, hugely difficult. And it'll be difficult and be something that the that the UK government will have to hope it can work very closely with the EU to find a very uninflammatory way of resolving. Um, there have been some debates about whether the UK would be prepared to sign up to something the EU says is on offer, which is dynamic alignment on sanitary and phytosanitary arrangements, which remove the need for border control posts. That might remove one of the big, uh, the biggest flashpoints uh, if they did that. But it's something that Lord Frost has said he's not prepared to contemplate because that would start throwing away some of the big wins of the trade and cooperation agreement from the government's point of view in terms of the ability to uh, to diverge. The government's already consulting on some bits, which uh, on things like gene editing, which would see the UK diverging from its inherited regime from the EU on those very same SPS regulations. So, uh, so you could see ways forward, but the ways forward are to take Great Britain back much closer to the EU to obviate the need for uh, for any special arrangements. Of course, that was what Theresa May was offering the DUP. That was where she and her number 10 were bending over backwards, I think, to accommodate the DUP to avoid at all costs that border in the Irish Sea that uh, Boris Johnson decided was the price worth paying for his sort of Brexit for the rest of Great Britain. So I think that will go down arguably is one of the most classic political misjudgments ever by the Democratic Unionists, the decision that they were better throwing their lot in with the European Research Group, the hardline Eurosceptics within the Conservative Party, and Boris Johnson than reaching an accommodation with Mrs May. Thanks for that. The marvellously named SPS, of course, being the sanitary and phytosanitary rules, which we're all going to become even more expert in. Stephen, and again, just perhaps draw this together for us. If you look at the possibility of a Sinn Féin first minister, what would that mean? A big symbolic change or actually something that could lead as well to um, a, a vote on reunification? Well, it, obviously, it's a huge symbolic change. And, you know, we had, I think it was the, the last election where um, for the first time uh, the unionist parties in Northern Ireland weren't able to command a, an outright majority of, of vote share and that was also symbolic and it does reflect uh, quite apart from you know uh, Arlene Foster and the, the issues of the protocol, it does reflect the changing demographics of Northern Ireland um, and those demographic changes scare uh, a lot of the people who are the, the grassroots, the base of the DUP what I would say is that on, on the other side, um, Sinn Féin, you know, 
needs to play this carefully because I don't think that um, I don't think there is a majority, a solid, reliable majority there yet in Northern Ireland uh, that would vote for reunification in a border poll or that even necessarily would um, support a border poll. Um, these are still very, ten, you know, sort of tendentious early days post Brexit in, in terms of how Brexit will. Um, will uh, sort of affect politics in Northern Ireland. And so I think that uh, Sinn Féin would have to do something that uh, does not come naturally to Sinn Féin, and that is to play things carefully. Critical elections take place next week, which could, no exaggeration, determine the future of the United Kingdom. But what might life outside the Union look like for Scotland and indeed the other devolved nations? And after two decades of devolution, do the devolved governments have a good story to tell on key services like schools and hospitals? These questions are the basis of two new reports from the IFG. And the authors, our chief economist Gemma Tetlow and IFG senior researcher Graham Atkins, join us now. Hi Gemma, hi Graham. Hi Bronwyn. Before we get into your reports, I want to start with Stephen. A week to go, what's the mood like in Scotland? Oh, uh, Bronwyn, the, uh, the mood in Scotland is please let this be over. Uh, I think <laughs> people very much want this election to be over. Uh, it has felt, um, obviously uh, in Scotland, we're coming off the back of the, the salmon sturgeon saga uh, and the, all the various inquiries into that and then straight on to an election and not just any election, an election in which there is talk of uh, another independence referendum in the near future. In Scotland, e- even people who are, you know, people I know who are pro-independence just say, oh God, let this all be over. In terms of the standing of the parties, you know, it is a familiar story. The SNP is far ahead in the polls. It, it, its lead is is closing slightly, but it's it's closing in SNP terms. So a couple of weeks ago, it was about 30 points ahead of the Tories, and now it's only about 20 odd points ahead. So um, that's actually quite a bad poll for the SNP. What we're probably looking at is either an SNP uh, majority outright at Holyrood or uh, an SNP Green majority. And obviously the Scottish Greens are a a pro-independence party as well. Uh, And so the argument from Nicola Sturgeon and also from uh, the Scottish Greens is that if there is a a pro-independence majority at Holyrood after this election, then that is an electoral mandate for uh, another referendum on independence and uh, Downing Street uh, can't possibly stand in the way. So constitutional rammy, as we would say in Scotland, appears to lie ahead. Yeah, but still less strong for the SNP, obviously, if, if it has to um, argue that together with the Greens as opposed to winning the majority itself. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would argue that, although, you know, the the SNP is currently for the past five years, it's been a minority um, government and has relied on support from the Greens. And certainly the argument that nationals put forward is that both of these parties will have pro-independence provisions in there or have pro-independence provisions in their manifestos. And there is even talk now of possibly a coalition between them rather than a, uh, they had a sort of DUP Tory style uh, relationship until now. Um, And so there's talk of a possible coalition, which would arguably strengthen uh, any mandate. We'll come back to those points. But uh, Graham, let's turn to your report. And your report looks back over the history of devolution, 20, 20 odd years. You cover a range of areas across all three devolved nations. So just tell us how different the policies are in each one and how different the sums of money being spent. 
So the policies in all four nations are now pretty different. Public services look different depending on which part of the UK you're in. So if we take social care as an example, kind of the amount of state-funded care that each different government provides uh, is very different. So if you're in Scotland or you're in Northern Ireland, uh, in Scotland, you'll get free personal care if you're aged over 65. And if you're in Northern Ireland, you'll receive free home care. So put simply, you're more likely to be eligible for free care if you're living in Scotland or Northern Ireland. Again, in schools, the different curriculums in the different nations are now very different. And, and in England, half of pupils attend academies. And those are, those are schools that have more freedom over what they choose to teach and how they spend their money. Likewise, in health, uh, Scotland and Wales have removed from the NHS internal market. But this split between different bits of the NHS that buy services and different bits that provide them. Uh, and in fact, England is now the only part of the UK that, that retains that. In terms of the money, we know that kind of all of the devolved nations spend more per person on comparable public services in England. And as some other Institute for Government work has shown, that's, that's principally because the UK government uses something called the Barnet formula to allocate devolved budgets, which has the consequence of preserving higher spending per person in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So there's more money being spent on public services in the devolved nations, but the results are really mixed. Yeah, I think I think that's about right for the free services that we cover in the report that are that the NHS, schools and, and social care. So it is worth saying as a start, there are a few areas where the devolved nations do perform better. So if we look at the proportion of kind of people waiting uh, four hours or less to be seen in emergency departments, that's uh, that's highest in Scotland. So So they're doing best there. But for the most part, performance tends to be somewhat worse in the other nations compared to England. So if we look at median waiting times for elective care, how long you might wait for something like a hip replacement or a knee surgery, we know that the median waiting time is longer in Wales than it was in England. We know that in Northern Ireland, it's, it's particularly shocking. So if we look at March 2020, uh, kind of the last month before the pandemic really hit, about 40% of patients on waiting lists in Northern Ireland waited longer than a year to, to have an appointment. If you compare that to England, it's only 0.1% of patients that are waiting, you know, kind of from having a referral to actually being treated. It's, put simply, you wait much, much longer in Northern Ireland for elective care than in England. And likewise, in schools, I think the other really big difference is that Welsh pupils consistently score kind of lower than pupils in the other nations and about 20 points lower. And to put that in context, that's roughly equivalent to an extra year's worth of schooling. So what these kind of results from international tests suggest is that the reading ability of pupils in Wales is about somewhere between a year and six months of school behind pupils in the other nations. That's really startling. And we've been talking about Scotland. What stands out there on education? I think on education, really, the, the kind of startling story is that kind of Scottish uh, science, Scottish pupils' mass and science attainment has been falling since 2006. And that's kind of surprising in a way, because initially Scottish pupils used to kind of attain higher scores than pupils in England, but now they attain scores that are uh, significantly lower. And that's despite the fact that Scotland's spending more per pupil uh, than the other nations. Stephen, let me bring you in here. How does this go down? There's this huge tradition um, of education in Scotland and reverence for it. What do people make of these kind of results? Yes, there, there is uh, sort of a lot of fondness for the idea of the Scottish education once being uh, the the envy of the world. Um, although you know, uh, there's there's a debate as to how much of that sort of rose tinted. Um, the, you know, th this is an attack line that is used a lot by the opposition. I have to say, it 
doesn't um, it doesn't really cut through a great deal, um, which might seem uh, extraordinary. But the the one of the sort of big reforms that the SNP uh, brought in was the Curriculum for Excellence, which is sort of a much more kind of almost nineteen seventies style. Kind of actually, what was done in England in the, in, in the seventies was this idea of sort of ch- progressive child centred learning. Now, its critics I would say that that has contributed um, a great deal to the uh, poverty-related attainment gap in schools, which um, uh, a recent Audit Scotland report said was still too wide and, and not narrowing anywhere near fast enough and contributed to um, so some of the findings that you see in Graham's, I have to say, very good report that, that chimes with a lot of what I write about on a day-to-day basis. Um, but also, you know, we have a you know a situation in Scotland where almost four in ten of the poorest pupils leave primary school without attaining the basic reading and writing level. You know, Scottish children in Scottish schools perform worse in maths than, you know, students in the Czech Republic, in Estonia, in Slovenia, and countries that we had previously, you know, led by some distance. So, so let me ask you, is this an electoral issue? Well, no, it's not. I'll be absolutely blunt with you. And, 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 and that's absolutely fascinating in itself. And then polls suggest what you're saying. So why not? I think that, um, well, you mentioned polls. So there was an ICM poll at the start of the, uh, the month that showed that independence was the sort of main, very important issue for 49% of voters in Scotland. Um, I forget where, where uh, education came down, but it was, it was certainly much lower than that. Uh, I think that... One of the, the sort of factors that we've seen in, in Scottish politics in the last 10 years is the constitution and how the constitution has sort of annexed everything else. And that is the, the main concern um, for people. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want to cast aspersions on that in that, you know, voters get to decide um, what they, what they uh, wish to decide on and what they wish to, what they want to draw on when they make their decision in terms of how they vote. And, you know, I, I would make the point as well that the argument from the SNP side is that with the powers of uh, the full powers of independence um, and be, being able to make different choices, then uh, the the outcomes of Scottish education would be would be better than present. Well, thanks. Thanks for putting it that way. That's a, that's um, a perfect point to bring in Gemma. Gemma, you've you've written a paper um, about Nicola Sturgeon's case for an independent Scotland and and looking at the finances of that and whether it could pay for itself and what that would look like. Um, just tell us a bit about that. Sure. I mean, obviously, there are a lot of aspects to the case for independence, but the, one of those aspects that I looked at in my paper this week is looking at the fiscal balance of the nations of the UK. So what public spending is done and what revenues are raised from each of the individual nations of the UK. And in Scotland, um, public spending is not only higher on the three service areas that Graham's paper looked at, but also in a range of other areas and actually to a greater extent in some of those other areas. For example, because of the free tuition fees for university students, there's higher spending in Scotland on roads and things like subsidising ferry and air travel for the island and the Scottish government also spends more on building and maintaining social housing and, and various other policy priorities. So overall, um, our figures suggest that in 2018, which is unfortunately the most recent year for which we currently have data that we can look across all four nations of the UK, public spending was almost £2,000 per person higher uh, for the benefit of those in Scotland than it was for those in England. And 
at the time of the last Scottish independence referendum, that higher level of spending was more than matched by higher revenues that were coming from taxing output from North Sea oil and gas. Um, but that isn't the case any longer. And so we're now in a position where Scotland has implicitly been running a much larger deficit than England has. And that was estimated to be 8.6% of Scottish GDP in 2019. So just before the full impact of the pandemic hit. And that level of borrowing just wouldn't be sustainable if Scotland was independent. Um, so there are obviously lots so of... So what, what would it have to do? In the longer run, I suppose this is the main SNP case, is that with full control over Scotland's economic policies, an independent Scotland could grow faster and that would ease that fiscal trade-off. But that won't happen fast enough to avoid having to make difficult choices about how to bring down borrowing in, in the first few years of independence. And there really are, there are only two options for how to do that. Either you cut public spending back to match revenues or you try and raise revenues. Um, if you left public spending in Scotland at its current level, that would mean that Scotland was spending roughly the same share of GDP as Germany does on public spending. So that's not out of line internationally. Um, they would just have to raise taxes somewhat to do that. And if you look at other European countries that spend that sort of higher level of GDP um, on public spending, they typically do raise more in, in particularly income tax and social security contributions from those in the middle of the income distribution. So countries that raise more in taxes tend to do it by taxing everyone a bit more. It's, you don't see many any countries that do it just by targeting extra taxes on the highest earners, for example. Um, really interesting point. And if they don't do that, then the kind of spending that Graham was talking about on public services might suffer. That's right. Um, you would, if you don't want to raise more in taxes, then you need to find cuts to spending. The SNP has pointed to some areas where they may be willing to do that. So they've, they've talked about the fact that they wouldn't want to match the UK's relatively high level of defence spending. But that on its own wouldn't be enough to close this gap. So you would be talking about finding cuts to spending on some of those more high priority areas. Thanks for putting it so clearly. So Stephen, is this debate going on uh, in Scotland? I, I hate to, to disappoint you, but this is another no. Um, I was listening to, to Gemma speaking there, and I think in the sort of four or five minutes um, that she uh, described her, her report, that's actually probably the most, uh, cons it's the longest period of time I've heard anyone talk about the economics of independence during this entire election. It is shockingly absent from the debate. And uh, the, interestingly, there's some... Uh, findings of a poll in the Scottish edition of the Times this morning um, which shows the sort of divergence in, uh, in, you know, between the kind of uh, research and reports that people like Gemma are putting out versus public opinion. So you know, one of the findings uh, from the, this uh, Times poll is that 40% of Scots uh, expect that with independence public spending would increase and a, and a further fifth uh, say that it would stay the same. Only a third of Scots believe that uh, public spending would uh, would have to decrease. There is a, a gap between, uh, I think, the the economic uh, realities of, of independence, whether you're for it or against it, and the public debate about it. And 
the, the public debate about it, certainly in, in, in this election, has been largely absent. This has largely been an election and is an election, um, or at least the SNP wants it to be one about Scotland's constitutional right. You know, the idea of whether the Scottish people are sovereign and they can um, they can uh, decide their future. So it's, it's all about, as, as Gemma was saying right at the beginning, you know, many of the non-economic things. But I'm going to take that. Thank you, Stephen, as an advert for reading Gemma's uh, excellent report on this. And uh, we'll hope that the debate catches up with that. We are going to have to leave it there for this edition of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Jill Rutter, Gemma Tetlow, Graham Atkins, and especially to Stephen Daisley. If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. We've got a couple of brilliant new episodes there for you, including my interview with the EU ambassador to the UK on some of these points, including about whether the EU will show flexibility. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Less than a week to go until election day. Start by voting for the IFG podcast and leaving us a review today. And remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Gemma's report is there. Graham's report is there. They're both excellent, very clear. We have two more new papers, one setting out the case for a COVID inquiry and another looking at how the rules into lobbying standards and refurbishment payments should be reset. That's four papers in a week to keep you busy on the long weekend. So enjoy reading them and thanks for listening. Sorry we couldn't bring this recording to you from Gold Paper, Eco Chic Podcast Studio another time. Have a good weekend.